Well, I hope you will excuse me, but this morning I decided to read uh, an exhortation by our brother Martin Southgate, ostensibly because I thought it was so good and helpful. And it's entitled, Warnings. It's from, based on James 5, and it's an exhortation to single-mindedness. So carefully and deliberately preserved in God's word, there are a number of very serious warnings, which we would be stupid to ignore. They're not there to depress us or to demotivate us or to intimidate us. They're there instead for our guidance and for our benefit. They're there at the behest of a loving father so that we can read them and think about them and hopefully be sensible enough to benefit from them. One of the serious warnings comes from Jesus himself, and I find its implications to be really quite frightening and certainly very sad. Jesus was giving what has become known as the Sermon on the Mount. He was speaking about the time of judgment which lies ahead for each one of us, and he had to reveal that some of his brethren and sisters are going to get a terrible shock when they stand before him on that awesome day. The brethren and sisters of whom he was speaking will have in their minds the knowledge that they have done a great deal for the truth. They'll be able to remember and they will actually recount to Jesus many of the things that they have done and I suppose they will anticipate that whatever their thoughts may have been, Jesus will at least be pleased to acknowledge all those good things that they have done for him. The shock will come when he refuses point blank to accept their works and even worse, when he tells them that he does not even recognise them as his brethren and sisters. Their hearts will surely freeze with amazement and terror when, to use Matthew's own words, he tells them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I find this warning of Jesus, for so it is, to be the most disturbing for three reasons. In the first place, he's telling us that some will definitely find themselves in the position he's described. He's not talking about a hypothetical situation. He's making a definite prophecy. Secondly, he's making the point that those who will be rejected in this way will not just be a few notable exceptions, far from it. He tells us plainly that many will fall into this category. And thirdly, it seems that those involved will genuinely be taken by surprise. They will not be the sort of brethren and sisters who know that they have not really pulled their weight and who are therefore aware of their own failures. They will not be those who have departed from the faith. They will really have regarded themselves as being Jesus' friends, not his enemies. The ability of the human heart to deceive itself is really quite astonishing. You will remember that about 800 years before Jesus gave his warning, the prophet Amos delivered an almost identical message to the people of his time. They too were looking forward to a day when God would openly intervene in their lives to bring them, as they thought, political salvation and personal redemption. But Amos was instructed by God to tell them that because of their irresponsible behaviour, the day of God's intervention would be for them a day of terrible despair rather than a day of rejoicing. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord, was the prophet's message. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, a much more ferocious animal, as though he entered his house expecting safety and security and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. 
Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark, without a ray of brightness? On so many occasions, the Apostle Paul exhorted against the ever-present danger of overconfidence and complacency. To the Romans, he wrote, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. He reminded the Corinthians how easily, how badly, the children of Israel had slipped back into worldly ways despite those tremendous privileges and experiences that they had had. And he highlights the lesson for us. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. You Christian converts were warned about returning to the law. We should be wary of unbending rules or rules the majority finds easy at the burdensome expense of another. We often hear the phrase, decently and in order, thrown around to justify or defend a particular way of doing things when another way may be perfectly reasonable. And we're not just warned about being overly legalistic, we're warned to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, not to rely on what others say just because they're elders or an authority in some way. And remember the Bereans, don't we? complimented for questioning Paul and checking out what he said. We're warned about allowing things to become too ritualistic, too habitual, about going along with the culture around us. And that includes being overly individualistic or selfish or critical. We're warned about lots of other social, conversational, sexual, spiritual and emotional things in which we can go wrong. In other words, we're warned about being what we find easy and the most fun, about being who we really are, naturally speaking. What effect are these very worrying warnings supposed to have on you and me? And these are just a few examples, as we say, of the many that abound in the Scriptures. Surely they're intended, above all, to make us realise that our admittance to the kingdom is by no means a foregone conclusion. They tell us that however hard we believe we may be working in the truth service, we can never afford to be presumptuous or complacent, and they make it clear that the mere carrying out of good works will not of itself endear us to God. They tell us that the spirit in which we do these things is very important. Perhaps, awful thought though it is, they mean that some of us here this morning will never reach the kingdom because we will continue to take too much for granted for too long. And we pray that is not the case. The point Jesus was making is illustrated so well by another of his parables, one which was targeted directly at the presumption and complacency of the Pharisee, who thought that a mere cold, formal, technical compliance with the requirements of the law would automatically bring him the approval of God. After all, he fasted twice a week, he gave tithes of all that he possessed, his personal behaviour was beyond reproach, he thought. He was not an extortioner, he was not unjust, He was not an adulterer. He wasn't like that despicable tax collector loitering over there in the shadows of the temple, too unsure of himself even to come out into the open. It will surely be in that self-righteous attitude that the rejected brothers and sisters will have done their good work, supposedly for Jesus, acting as though by doing this or that they were scoring points, so that if they earned enough they would be allowed to enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus is not looking for that sort of behaviour and that sort of attitude in his friends. He's not looking for works for their own sake. He's looking for actions which are perfectly natural result of faith that works only by love. 
As Paul wrote again to the Corinthians, If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. What Jesus is looking for in you and in me is a heart that is so full of love for God and his ways that its only possible response is to demonstrate that love and that godliness in appropriate works. Jesus is looking for those whose hearts and not just their heads are really in the truth. In some more of Jesus' own words, he is much happier having as his friend the poor, humble widow with her generous heart than the overconfident, ostentatious Pharisee however impressive and wealthy and deserving he might think himself to be. After all, one's own judgment of oneself is almost certain to be faulty and untrue and over-optimistic. That poor widow had nothing really to offer. She could only offer Jesus her heart, but she was more than happy to give the whole of her heart to him without reserve. She was a superb example of what Jesus meant when he said that none of his disciples are going to enter the kingdom of God unless their righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees' life was, for so many of them, a double one. It was a pathetic, hypocritical, half-hearted attempt at godliness. It was a life that was intended to give glory to the Pharisee rather than to God. I think the epistle of James, which we have been reading this week, can help each of us to assess our own position insofar as these principles are concerned, and I'm sure that most of us here would accept the need for such an assessment. James was writing some 15 years or so after the resurrection, at a time when the gospel was still almost exclusively Jewish. He was writing to Jews who had adopted Christianity but who were living far from Jerusalem perhaps those who had been forced to flee from Jerusalem because of the persecution of men like Saul of Tarsus. There is clear evidence in the New Testament that these Jewish believers maintained strong and close links with many aspects of their former religious life. In Acts, there is a reference, as you will know, to thousands of Jews who believed but were still zealous insofar as the law was concerned. There is a reference in the same book to some Pharisees who had accepted Christianity and had been baptised but who nevertheless were still insistent that the rites and ordinances of the law should be perpetuated. So, serious problems were manifesting themselves in these early, predominantly Jewish churches, and it seems that there were two main areas of difficulty. First, some of these brethren and sisters were finding it extremely difficult to throw off the former ways of life to which they had become so accustomed. And secondly, as one brother has so succinctly put it, There was a tendency in Jewish believers to be influenced by a Judaistic formalism that robs the truth of its power. And a combination of these two things was leading the brethren and sisters involved to live in a way that was unacceptable and inconsistent, a way that if persisted in would bring them certain redemption on the day of judgment. The truth had been taught to them. And it was still having to, but it was still having to compete with the requirements of the former way of life. A healthy, active faith demonstrated by works carried out from the heart and motivated purely by a love of God was being stifled by a cold, unfeeling, formal, point-scoring attitude. And so many of the criticisms that James makes in his epistle are echoes of Jesus' comments against the Pharisees. It occurred to me that, in principle, these weaknesses of the first-century Jewish brothers and sisters were by no means confined to them. They're still with us today. 
among the present-day brothers and sisters of Christ, there is still a tendency to relax back into worldly ways or to look over the shoulder at the world. Uh, We should have left a long way behind. And there is in some quarters that same tendency to a stifling, point-scoring formalism and complacency which goes along with that, so characteristic of the Pharisees. So I'd like to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at something of what James has to tell us. He tells us very clearly that any hint of double standards must be absolutely unthinkable. Everything that goes to make up our lives must be consistent with our profession to be God's children, striving to become more and more like our Father. And his arguments are very firmly based on God's own example. He refers to God that giveth to all men liberally. And that word liberally means generously, wholeheartedly, single-mindedly. In other words, James is reminding us that there is nothing reluctant or stinted or half-hearted about God's willingness to give to his children. He is a God who gives lovingly, with purity of motive, without regard to the personal cost. He gives with outstretched hand, was one writer's attempt to capture the meaning of this word liberally. This is how freely God is prepared to give to his children, to you and to me, says James. And he expects us to respond to him in the same way, with the same warmth and generosity of service, with the same unstinting and undivided commitment, with the same disregard for personal cost, without any holding back whatsoever. There is no room at all here for that cold or formal attitude, and it's thus unshakable and unwavering commitment of God to his children that allows them to entrust their entire lives to him in complete faith and without any doubts at all. James tells us that if we come to God with a doubting faith, with a certain measure of distrust, then quite frankly we're wasting our time. You might as well not bother because it's no good half committing our way to him. That's a non-saving faith. It's quite pointless and useless trying to use him as a partial support, perhaps only on those occasions where we feel in need of extra comfort or a bit of additional strength. This is how James puts it. If any of you lack wisdom or guidance, as the word means, that is, if any of you are looking for help in a spiritual sense, Let him ask of God, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. The exhortation is extremely clear. The measure of God's response to us will be determined to a large degree by our attitude towards him. But then we have this awful problem that we're frail mortals. We're so unlike our Father. The rock-like stability which is so characteristic of him, which is him, is quite alien to us. It's a quality that we can only develop through long and painful effort. It's so much easier for us to lapse back into that double-minded state where worldly thinking and motivation seriously begin to affect the way we live in the truth. By the very nature, we are like that restless, turbulent sea of which James speaks. And I rather like one writer's comment on the picture which James is painting here, the wave. He says, is a very element of, is the very element of instability, of restlessness, of purposeless motion. 
The ceaseless agitation of the storm-driven wave represents the unrest of the man or woman not grounded or settled in the faith. Throughout this short epistle, James warns us of the dangers of being double-minded to any degree at all, and he refers to those who seem to be religious but who lack control over their tongues, as those who lack control over their tongues that gives them away. He condemns those who care for the needs of their brethren and sisters, is confining it to just a few well-chosen words rather than a real practical help. He refers to inconsistencies in the lives of the believers as being as ridiculous as a fountain sending forth from the same spout both sweet and bitter water, or a fig tree bearing olive berries or a vine producing figs. He has some extremely hard words about those who make the attempt to mix friendship with the world with God's friendship. Indeed, he tells us that the two are quite incompatible. He says that even as we voluntarily reach out to take hold of the world's hand, so we let go of God's. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded, is one of his exhortations, and he is speaking to brethren and sisters. Principles like these are, of course, much more understandable when we see them working in practice, and James impresses his teaching upon us with a superb example of total, single-hearted commitment to God, based on confidence in his promises. Was not Abraham justified by works when he had offered Isaac, upon his son, upon the altar? Abraham's dedication to God is almost unbelievable. He was a man who was prepared quite literally to fulfil Jesus' test of a true disciple. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So just for a moment or two, let us marvel at this man's amazing trust in God. Try, if you can, to put yourself in Abraham's place as that appalling message came to him from God. Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac whom thou lovest, and offer him for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I shall tell thee of. Perhaps those who are parents will best be able to enter into Abraham's feelings as those devastating words fell upon his ears. Isaac, his only son, his only beloved son, the one whom through the promises were to become reality the son on whom he'd lavished so much care and love over the years of his childhood, was now to have his young life abruptly ended, and that by his own father's hand. The very words used by the angel show us beyond all doubt that God was well aware of the grievous severity of the test that he was imposing upon Abraham. He knew how much Abraham loved his son. He knew how indescribably painful it was going to be for him to carry out that command to sacrifice thine only son whom thou lovest. Here was God wanting to measure the extent and the quality and the durability and the single-mindedness of a man's faith. Here was God saying to Abraham, show me that you love me more than anything else in the world, more even than that son I know you love so much. What would your reaction have been to such a command? More to the point, what would mine have been? 
I cannot and I would not dare to speak for any of you, but for myself I can only think of the delaying tactics that I might have used to allow me to snatch a few more moments with my much-loved son. But nothing like that with Abraham. Quite the opposite. He was already on his way to fulfil God's will, with, it might seem to us, almost indecent haste. Abraham did not need any delaying tactics because he was so confident that Isaac would be returning home with him. That was what he told the young men who had travelled with them. I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. God had made promises to Abraham that required Isaac to grow up and have a family. Abraham knew that he might be called upon to plunge that knife into his son's own body and he would have done it. But he did not have any doubts at all about the fact that God would immediately raise him from the dead again. And you see the point. Nothing, absolutely nothing was allowed to cloud his judgment or weaken his faith. If Abraham had been even slightly double-minded, he could never have survived that test of his faith. Now we think about the most committed man who's ever lived. The man whose heart was always entirely in tune with his father. The man who was so close to his father, so confident in his father's ability to carry out what he had promised that he actually did pay the ultimate price. The man whose vision of the future was so bright and so real that he was able to face the pain and the shame of that cross. Think of him as the last few moments of his freedom trickled away. What do you think his thoughts were as his blackest hour arrived? Father, how I dread what those evil men are going to do to me over the next few hours. How I fear that cross on the hill with all that it means. O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. 